Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Hello, Genesis community. Today's scripture reading is out of the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2, verse 10. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter and hard with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, She got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the banks of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Here we are. We're in Exodus 1. And the last time we were in the Old Testament was when Dan preached on the story of Jacob, right? When he wrestled with God, he got the new name Israel, and then he crossed the river to go reunite with his brother Esau. So that was Genesis chapter 32. Today, we're in Exodus 1. That means we have like 17 chapters of narrative to catch up on. So I thought we could start off with a two-minute roundup. But here's the thing, when I actually sat down to time my two-minute roundup, there was no way I could talk fast enough to cram it into two minutes. So we're actually gonna do a three-minute roundup. I know, so exciting. So are you ready for a three-minute roundup? Let's do it! God gave a promise to Abram and Sarah that he will bless them and make their name great and give them a son and their offspring will be as numerous as the stars. But then they take matters into their own hands and we have the devastating story of Hagar and Ishmael. But then a few years pass and Isaac is born and Abraham and Sarah laugh in disbelief. Then Isaac grows up and marries Rebecca. They have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricks Esau out of his inheritance and then runs away. Through a series of trickery, seven years later marries Leah, and then seven years after that marries Rachel. Then, some years after that, Jacob receives some dreams and words from God encouraging him to go back home. So he does, and that's where we have the story of him wrestling with God, becoming Israel, and then crossing the river. Eventually, Jacob, who is now Israel, has 12 sons with Rachel and Leah. These are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And they also have at least one daughter named Dina. One of his sons' name was Joseph. Does that sound familiar? Israel slash Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So he gave him this fancy robe. But this makes all the rest of his brothers hate him. Even more so, Joseph keeps telling them that he's having these dreams that one day all of his brothers are going to bow down to him. So his brothers sell him into slavery and then lie and tell their dad that he was killed. Lo and behold, Joseph is alive, and he makes his way to Egypt now to work for Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. Genesis interjects this Joseph narrative with a very important story about Judah and Tamar, a woman who uses her wit and her wiles to secure a livelihood after Judah denies to take care of her as two of his sons' widows, refuses to give her to his third son, mistakes her for a prostitute, and then ends up humiliated and now stuck with taking care of her. It's a great story. Anyways, back to Joseph. Through a series of events, Joseph rises from slavery and imprisonment to having authority and power alongside Pharaoh over the land of Egypt. Then a famine spreads throughout the land and Joseph's brothers are desperate. So they travel from Canaan to Egypt to get some food for their family. Through a series of trickery, Joseph finally reveals to his brothers that he is indeed the brother that they sold into slavery. 
And there's this really sweet family reunion full of tears and hugs and forgiveness. And in chapter 45, then Pharaoh invites Joseph's entire family to come stay with them in Egypt. Jacob, Israel, is a little nervous to leave the land that God promised to his ancestors. But God visits him and says, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and also bring you back up again. So they all settle in this land and another famine strikes Egypt. Jacob blesses his sons and then he dies and says, I want my bones to be buried with my ancestors in Canaan. And that's the end of Genesis. Now we're in Exodus 1 and the first seven verses that preclude our text this morning note how eventually Joseph and all of his brothers died and that whole generation of Israelites passed away. And now the Israelites are multiplying and they're filling the land. And that's where our story begins with a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph in the story of the Israelites. And all he knew was that these foreigners, these Israelites were becoming extremely populous and strong and becoming a threat to national security. Whew, we did it. So our story today is the first story in the book of Exodus. And what I love about this story is that it is so masterfully written. We're going to do a couple things with our text this morning. We're going to get really nerdy into the original Hebrew language it was written in because I promise you, it is so cool. And we're going to look at the intersectionality of race, sex, and class and how God uses humans at all stages, phases, and spheres of life to bring liberation to her people. So this is going to be really fun and I'm excited. As we walk through our text today, I'm going to point out some of these hyperlinks in the story. Remember, sometimes Steve talks about how hyperlinks are in the story to connect you to other stories. Um, as I highlight these hyperlinks, and they are everywhere throughout this text, um, I'm going to put the Hebrew words on the screen somewhere. <laughs> and which I know for some people, you know, this Hebrew is just like so boring, like get on with it. And other people just eat it up. And then some of us are just like, I mean, yeah, it's cool, I guess. So wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, um, you are welcome. And I encourage you to try something new. As these Hebrew words and letters appear on the screen, I want you to grab a piece of paper and something to draw with and try drawing out these words and letters um, as a way to sort of connect and ground yourself into this ancient text. No one's grading you. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, I just hope it might be a playful experience to approach the Bible from a different angle. And remember, Hebrew reads from right to left, not left to right. So here we go. All right, a new king um, arose over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Right? And he says, ah, these Israelites are more numerous and powerful than we are. So what does Pharaoh do? He creates this plan that it's rooted in fear, but it's to wisely and systemically enslave this entire group of people. Otherwise, they will continue to increase in numbers and fight against Egypt or just get up and leave and cause their economy to come crashing down. Um, oh, Hey, and look at that. We have our first hyperlink. Can anyone guess what it is? The word we translate in English as increase is the Hebrew word rava. Say that with me. Rava. This means to multiply. Hmm, to multiply. 
Where have we seen that word in the Old Testament? God's command to the first humans, be fruitful and rava, multiply. So the Israelites are simply doing what God commanded them to do. They're multiplying. And this word rava is a thread woven through Genesis, connecting our story today in Exodus 1 to God's command in Genesis 1 and to God's promise to Abraham to make his offspring numerous and to God's faithfulness in Israel's history and genealogy. So the children of Israel are multiplying and becoming as numerous as the stars. And this is the conflict of our story. Pharaoh has a problem because the Israelites are so numerous that they might rebel. And so he proposes three different solutions and we're gonna look at those today. The first we've already seen, right? Let's enslave the Israelites. But that doesn't work because the more they were oppressed, the more that they ravad, the more they multiplied. So the Egyptians worked them harder and they became ruthless, but to no avail. We see here in verses 9 through 14, there's this back and forth repetition of rava, right, multiply, and the word avad, that means to work or to serve. And our English translates it into a couple different words right? Tasks, service, labor. It's this back and forth of rava, avad, rava, avad. Um, and this repetition only emphasizes this tension between Israel's multiplication and fruitfulness and Egypt's fear and unsuccessful attempt to oppress their population into dwindling. And so Pharaoh tries a new plan. His second attempt to solve this Israelite problem rests on the shoulders of two midwives named Shifra and Pua. Now let's pause for a moment. What were the names of the Hebrew midwives again? Shifra and Pua. And wait, what was the name of the Pharaoh? We don't know. <laughs> and I love that. You see, our Bible, the sacred text undeniably reflects the patriarchal society in which it was written. And that's why women are rarely ever given names. So when women are named, we better pay attention. Because when they're named, this means that their leadership, their actions, their contributions to the story were deemed important enough by these men to not only write it down, but to also remember their names. So let's pay attention here. Shifra, Pua. This is a slap in the face to this unnamed Pharaoh because Shifra and Pua, these two poor, lowly midwives up to their elbows in placenta are named and Pharaoh, the ruler of the land is not. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Yay. Now, I love these women and I love this story because as a woman, as I was going through seminary, I had to collect stories and exegetical arguments to not only encourage myself and other women in my classes um, that what we were doing was good and holy work, but also, unfortunately, to refute any man who tried to discourage me or discredit my calling. 
And this, my friends, was one of those stories that I clung to. Two women who are named bravely defied an unnamed pharaoh and not only saved numerous lives, but ultimately made the way for the liberation of Israel and eventually the world. Well, and you may say, wait a second, wait a second. They lied to Pharaoh. That's not good. God says we can't lie. So why is this a good story? And this is where it gets kind of fun because that is a very privileged response to this story. And I'll admit, this was my first reaction when I read the text. Because when you are disenfranchised and you have no power or a court to go to, and you know what is right and what must be done, in the face of power, you need to be crafty. You need to be sneaky. You need to practice, as one scholar notes, creative disobedience. And I love that. There's this entire theme throughout scripture called the trickster theme. <laughs> and it's exactly what we see here. Most often it's women using their wit and their wiles to do what they have to do when they have very little power to get it done. So we see that here with Shifra and Pua. We also see this in the story of Tamar that I recounted earlier in Genesis 38. We see this with Rahab in Joshua 2 right? When she lies to the men of the king of Jericho in order to save the lives of the Israelite spies. And we also see this in the second half of our story today with Moses's sister and his mother. They come up with this sneaky way for Moses's own mother to breastfeed him and get paid for it. That is the life. <laughs> so all of this leads nicely into Pharaoh's third attempted solution. Because Shifra and Pua, they say, oh, sorry, Pharaoh, we can't kill these baby boys because Hebrew women are just too strong. They give birth too fast. They're too full of life. And so Pharaoh sees yet again that these Israelites just keep ravaing, multiplying. And so he turns to his own people. And he says to the Egyptians, take matters into your own hands. If you see a Hebrew baby boy, go throw it in the Nile River. Because that way, they won't have any soldiers to fight against us. And their lineages won't continue. He says they're a threat to our national security. So go kill them while they're boys. Hmm. Do we see that at all reflected in our own country's history and present day. Something to think about. But then Pharaoh says, if you see a Hebrew baby girl, ah, that's fine, just leave her alone, she's harmless. <laughs> but we see in our story that that's not quite true, is it? One of my favorite, all-time favorite feminist scholars, Phyllis Tribble, she says that had Pharaoh known the cunningness and the craftiness of these women, he would have commanded that all infant females be killed instead. And I love that. So now here we are at the end of chapter one. You know, Egypt seems to have solved their Israelite problem because we see how terrified Moses's mother is that she gave birth to a boy. But now 
You know, Egypt has solved their Israel, Israelite problem, but now Israel has an Egyptian problem. They're being enslaved. They're being attacked. They're under threat by the Egyptians. And so remember, back to my three-minute roundup, what God said to Jacob slash Israel when he was nervous about leaving Canaan, the land of his ancestors, for Egypt. God says in Genesis 46, 3 through 4, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. See, they're becoming great. They're becoming multitudinous. And God says, I myself will go down to Egypt with you, and I will also bring you back up again. Hmm. So it seems like God has a plan see what this plan of God's is. Okay, so remember this whole thing about names? Well, this second story, beginning in chapter 2, it's interesting because the only person who is actually given a name is this baby, Moses. And that's not even until the very last sentence. So we learn from later on in this Exodus narrative that Moses' sister's name is Miriam. And we know from later genealogies in chapter 6 that this man from the house of Levi, Moses' dad, his name is Amram. And he is the grandson of Levi and the great-grandson of Jacob, Israel. We also know that this Levi woman he marries, so Moses' mom, her name is Jochebed. And she's the daughter of Levi and the granddaughter of Jacob, Israel. So if you're keeping track, yes, Moses' dad married his aunt. Gotta love it. But this connection to Levi is important. And I think there's a reason why the authors of Exodus chose to emphasize this Levitical lineage. Because later on in the story of Exodus, the tribe of Levi becomes the tribe of priests. So the authors are already establishing Moses's and, you know, his brother Aaron, he is the first priest, first priest over Israel. The authors are already establishing their leadership and their credibility, being from the tribe of Levi. And for those of you who are missing our hyperlinks, don't worry, because we have a lot of them coming up right now. So get ready. So this baby Moses is born, and his mother looks at him and saw that he was fine. Can you imagine that? Oh, look at this baby. This baby's fine. <laughs> but does anyone have a guess as to what that word is in Hebrew? It's tov. Where have we heard the word tov before? When God created the world and saw that everything she created was good, she said tov. It is good. So after Jochebed created Moses in her womb, she gave birth to him, looked at him, and said, this baby is Tov. There's something special about this baby boy. Something in him that connects him to creation, to recreation, to new beginnings. So Jochebed hides him for as long as she can. 
And when she can no longer hide him, she places him in a basket. Ready? Here comes another hyperlink. Because this word for basket in Hebrew is teva. Can you say that with me? Teva. The only other time this word teva is used in the Hebrew Bible is in the story of Noah. Noah builds an ark, a teva. Moses is placed in an ark basket, teva. Moses is another Noah. Moses will be delivered from this watery threat of the Nile, and as a result, there will be a new beginning for God's people, just as in the story of the flood. And even further, we have another hyperlink. The text says that Moses' mother placed the teva, the ark, the basket, among the reeds. And this word here is suf, reeds. When Moses finally leads the Israelites out of Egypt, spoiler alert, I'm skipping ahead a few chapters in Exodus, they have to cross through the Sea of Reeds. Right now, many of us have probably heard this as the Red Sea, and somewhere along in history, this became popular, a popularized translation, but really in Hebrew, this is the Sea of Suf, the Sea of Reeds. And so the writers are making a theological connection here. God is doing something new, and you know he's doing something new when he saves people through water. So we have teva, an ark, a basket, and we have suf, reeds in the Nile River, and the sea of reeds. And this legendary rescue of Moses, Israel's liberator, is being linked not only to the watery new beginnings in creation when his mother proclaims that he is tov, but also to the watery new beginnings in Moses and the watery new beginnings in the crossing of the Sea of Reeds. Boom, boom, boom. They're all connected. Moses is God's plan for liberating his people from Egypt. Moses is God's solution to Israel's Egyptian problem. Yet Moses would have never lived without the help of five crafty and compassionate women. Shifra, Pua, Miriam, Yochebed, and Pharaoh's daughter. Now Pharaoh's daughter is a really interesting character. Right? She's the daughter of Pharaoh, the man, the power, the authority that demanded the quasi-genocide of all the Hebrew baby boys. Yet, she comes across a Hebrew boy floating in a basket, a teva, along the Nile River and has compassion on him. And she spares him from whatever deadly fate awaits him further down the river. So here's an all play for us today, a chance to hear the voice of the chorus. Why does she do this? Why does she draw Moses out of the water? And what does she risk in doing so?
I'm really excited to see what you guys come up with as answers to this question. Because as we look at this story, we see a number of different power systems at play. We see race, gender, class, and religion all intersect in these great moments of tension, right? We have Pharaoh, the king, the authority, the one who owns all the land and has all the power, and he's afraid of these foreigners whose growing numbers threaten the very power given to him by the gods. And then we have the Egyptians, the people of privilege, listening to the fear of their leader. And they're given this power and this allowance to use violence against these foreigners. And then we have the children of Israel, right? They are the foreigners in this land and they're enslaved for being foreigners and for following their own religion, what God told them to do, to be fruitful and multiply. Rabbah. Next, we have the Hebrew women, right? We have the midwives who defy the political power and reverence of their God and the value of life. And we have the mothers who bear great fear and sorrow for simply being fruitful and doing what is biologically natural to them. And then you have the sisters, the ones spared from violence and death, wrestling with this survivor's guilt, fearing their future. And all of these women are practicing this creative disobedience to survive and to do what is right. And lastly, we have Pharaoh's daughter, a person of privilege and of power who openly defies the rule of law for the sake of compassion and life. This woman who is creating some good trouble. So Pharaoh, we see, gives into his fear and insecurity, inciting violence and oppression, furthering the divide between the us of the Egyptians and the them of the Israelites. Yet all the women in our story showed bravery in the midst of fear and terror. And it's no coincidence that the most important story in the Hebrew Bible begins with five courageous and creative women determining the events. Without them, who knows what the liberation of Israel might have looked like. This, show, this story shows us that God uses the lowly, the disenfranchised, and the overlooked to overcome the strong. God uses women women with names and identities apart from the men in their lives. God uses babies. God uses those who are enslaved, those who are oppressed. God uses those who are foreigners in a land. And God even uses those with power and privilege who yield it with compassion and other-centered love. And what about the proud? What about those who hoard wealth and power and possessions? What about those who fear those who are different from them? What about the ones who respond with violence and oppression 
the ones who believe that somehow, some way, they are greater than the other. Well, we learn from this story, and really the entire Bible, that God is not afraid to humble them. Dare I say, humiliate them as she lifts up those who are oppressed. And God is not afraid to name and include the disenfranchised, the marginalized, and those who are overlooked in the story of bringing liberation and new life to her people. That's all I have. <laughs> that is the word of the Lord. Time and time again throughout the Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions, questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.